What was your, um, I suppose, entry point into getting interested into Masjid al-Aqsa and the Palestinian cause? Uh, it starts from a point of arrogance almost, now that I look at it from hindsight. The most important thing I think, though the most dangerous thing I ha- that happens in colonialism is epistemicide, mm. because what happens is you take the knowledge base of the indigenous and impose the European knowledge base so they forget their own history. When mm. Salahuddin liberated Jerusalem, not only did he allow the Christians, the Crusaders, to remain if so they wished, but he also allowed the Jewish community who were again expelled by the Christians to return back. There was one bishop, Christian bishop, in the time of Muawiyah. He's like, you know, these, these Muslims, they're all right, you pay your taxes, they, they leave you alone, they let you get on with your worship. But I have one criticism of them. Um, they don't persecute the Jews. <laughs> you know, that was his criticism of... Uh, you know, the Muslims. When a ship, listen to this, when a ship left with women and children from Germany, being persecuted by Hitler, arrived at New York, not a single Jew was allowed to enter America. They they told the ship to go back. They wouldn't allow them. And these are refugees being persecuted by Hitler, and America wouldn't allow them to enter United States of America. And where did that ship end up? So you're saying Coca-Cola, what was the second one? You said two products. Sorry, Hewlett-Packard. Hewlett-Packard. Uh, sorry, Puma and Puma, we've got Puma. three. Puma okay. is, uh, we wear t-shirts. I was, uh, uh, I was worried you were going to say Pepsi there. <laughs> no. When we started a campaign to write to the British uh, parliamentarians mm. uh, to condemn uh, the evictions, the forceful expulsions of people from Sheikh Jarrah, we had 120,000 letters go out to them. There is not a single MP, to my estimation, in British Parliament today who hasn't received over 1,000 letters. Assalamu alaikum brothers and sisters. Islam Tunisi had a very unique Ramadan this year in raising over £130,000, mashallah, through your generosity for our charity partner, One Ummah Charity, who we worked with to deliver emergency aid in 15 crisis-hit countries around the world. And one of them is Palestine and the city of Gaza in particular. Just look at the images, the amazing images of your sadaqah and zakah being delivered in Gaza this Ramadan. These images were taken just before the war on Al-Aqsa and Gaza began, subhanAllah. As you've seen, the situation is beyond imaginable right now. Hundreds of Muslims have been killed, including a large number of children. Thousands of Palestinians have been injured. More than 90,000 people have been displaced. On Wednesday the 20th of May, one Ummah delivered hot meals across Gaza, for example. The team distributed them to a hospital and two schools where displaced families have taken refuge. Now we need to urgently provide crucial aid and medical aid to hospitals who are in dire need of your help. We need your help. Gaza needs your help. £100 to provide emergency aid. Please donate generously. The link is on screen and in the description below. Please share it and please do continue to make dua for the Palestinians and the rest of the Ummah at large. Inshallah. Assalamu alaikum, brothers and sisters. We're back after our Ramadan break. I hope you've all been well. How's it going? Let us know in the comments. Uh, we've all been following what's been happening in Palestine and Gaza in particular recently. And we thought we have to make our first podcast back after the break about this, of course. So we thought, who better to get on than uh, a veteran in this scene? Uh, we wanted some practical, empowering steps uh, to empower ourselves with knowledge and some uh, action as well, effective action. 
So we've got someone who's been doing this work for literally decades. We've got uh, Ismail Patel, Sheikh Ismail Patel from Fen- Friends of Al Aqsa, mashallah He's been uh, working in this field since the early 90s, mashallah tabarakallah. That's almost 40 years, subhanallah. Uh, 40 years, maybe 30 years, quick maths. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's been doing a lot of the hard work and effective uh, work, mashallah tabarakallah, when it comes to advocacy for Masjid Aqsa, the Palestinian cause and general uh, kind of uh, decoloniality or call it uh, on, 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 on a general scale doing not just the highlights not just the, the kind of fancy razzmatazz but the hard work that goes into actual effective uh, campaigning and activism and ad- advocacy work and uh, raising awareness we spoke about um, the history we spoke about the then the now and the future Yeah, we spoke about uh, the decoloniality the need for uh, Muslims to actually exert our own ways of thinking, ways of uh, uh, Muslim subjectivity. I don't want to give too much away. You're going to see it in, in a second. Uh, we spoke about practical things that we can do to do our bit in our realm, in our part of civil society uh, for the Palestinian issues, for our brothers and sisters, for Mashar al Aqsa. And we spoke about what his future vision is, uh, as well as some uh, common doubts, misconceptions, and arguments people might throw his way uh, along the way. Just before we begin, just a quick reminder, I know it's been a long time, you haven't heard me say this for a while and you're probably missing it, but do click like and uh, subscribe this, uh, to this podcast if you are interested in this kind of stuff. Click the bell notification that will make this uh, uh, future uploads you know, go straight to your um, notifications box, I think. Uh, also, if you have any comments, uh, please do let us know in the uh, suggestions in the comments below. And also please consider um, supporting this podcast financially. Many of you have uh, graciously and kindly asked, you know, how do we support the podcast? Just uh, set up a click on the link somewhere here uh, or in, in, in the description below to set up a just five pounds a month. It's only 16p a day, I think, if I remember correctly. And uh, yeah, we can uh, we can move on from there, inshallah. So without further ado, here's Sheikh Ismail Patel. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Assalamu alaikum and thank me, thank you for inviting me in the program. Barakallah fikum uh, for coming. I mean, you've uh, you've been in the, the the on the on the Palestinian Palestinian activism scene for a while, mashallah. Barakallah. Ever since I can remember, uh, I remember you came to our uh, university once, and uh, I think that's the first time um, I, I saw you. That was like uh, maybe fifteen years ago, subhanallah. When I was, uh, maybe we shouldn't tell people uh, how yeah. long that was. <laughs> but. Uh, I just wanted to get your, um, you know, your, your your personal story out, you know, first in terms of, you know, what motivated you, what what was your, um, I suppose, entry point into getting interested into Masjid Aqsa and the Palestinian cause and, you know, things around that. Well, it's a very strange start actually. Uh, it starts from a point of arrogance almost. Now that I look mm-hmm. at it from hindsight that uh, I felt being educated in a British university, uh, I knew how the world order was and how it should be. And for one reason or another, I was taken to Palestine uh, by accident, uh, not knowing what that land was all about, uh, its people, and coming from a purely Eurocentric perspective. Uh, When I went there, I was shocked at what I saw, and shocked because... I felt that I was so knowledgeable 
uh, and yet I did not know what was happening on the ground in Palestine. Uh, coming from an African background, I'm originally from Malawi. I had visited South Africa many a times and witnessed uh, the apartheid system there. Mm. And it didn't, nobody needed to explain to me uh, what was happening in Palestine and how the Palestinians were treated was very similar to the apartheid system in South Africa. Mm. But more than that, somebody then took me to Al-Aqsa Mosque and they started telling me about Masjid Al-Aqsa. And here I was a very young uh, arrogant British university educated individual who knew how the world should be and is was just simply taken aback. And that shock uh, just woke me up. And I remember between Asr and Maghreb when I was there, I just stayed at one place. I didn't move. I just looked at the Qubat al Sakra and Masal al Aqsa and contemplated as to how I had drifted so far away from a narrative that I was never aware of. And I think that awakening that took place there changed. And this we're talking about middle of 1995. Mm. Uh, that's when this took place. So when I came back to Britain, after really just a four-night stay, I didn't stay for very long there. I came back after that. Uh, and I started telling a few people what I had witnessed. And everybody I spoke to didn't know what was happening. Did not know about Masjid Al-Aqsa. And then that sort of, and I was not a public speaker. Uh, I could write a little bit, but definitely not a public speaker. So mm-hmm. as I was telling individuals, everybody was telling me, why don't you get a gathering together and, and have a talk and tell people? But because I couldn't do public speak, so I had to invite somebody. So in almost for the first three years, all our talks, or the talks I arranged at that time was just independent individual, were done by other people. Mm. And alhamdulillah, over time, uh, I broke my sort of uh, inhibition <laughs> of your comfort speech. zone. That's right. Mm. Uh, and, and then that took us further. So it's really, going back to your question, I would say it was because of my arrogance more than anything mm. else mm. that brought me into, into the fall of the Palestinian issue. And it, it's a blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, really, that he made me aware that I was arrogant. He made me mm. aware that the knowledge I had gained had actually misled me. Uh, and I think this is something I want to really pick up in today's conversation, that what we learn and how we are taught things and how we come to see the world, it is so important for us. Mm. And therefore, we have to critically, as Muslims, critically look at everything we are absorbing mentally more than physically, I think. And that would really help us see the world and liberate ourselves and more than that, decolonize ourselves from the Eurocentric narrative mm. that we are engulfed in. It's been less than five minutes and you've already used my favorite buzzwords, mashallah. <laughs> you know, uh, narrative, uh, absorbing, uh, you know, uh, knowledge from around us, decolonize. Um, I, I mean, it, what you're describing, it it sounds like um, what they, what they you know, they talk about as, uh, you know, epistemicide, you know, when it, when, when sure. it comes to uh, Eurocentrism, you mentioned, um, when it comes to trying to, um, attack or, or, or carry out some violence towards the knowledge, knowledge production systems, sure. and just the way we think, you know, of of, of colonized people or or, yeah. or people subjected to imperial um, domination. What was your so what briefly? What was your kind of understanding? You know, you're saying the knowledge you thought you had. What was that knowledge? What was your understanding of the cause and? But of course, that knowledge was. Uh, Eurocentric imperialism, 
where the white man had the responsibility uh, mm-hmm. and that responsibility gave them a right to go around the world and educate them and elevate the status of the indigenous barbarism mm-hmm. uh, and therefore they and it is an enlightenment project that the white man had to go around the world and it was almost like a responsibility and therefore the flip side of that means that wherever they went they had a right to do whatever they want they had an entitlement mm-hmm. to not only consider the indigenous as it dispensable, but everything they had, as you use the word epistemicide, mm. what that means is the total destruction of the knowledge, cultural and social base of that community and society and impose a European model upon them. And I think this is something about colonialism that we do not put enough emphasis and focus on because we normally talk about the human value, the, the, the loss of human life, uh, mm-hmm. the expropriation of their assets and properties and land and things like that, which is all in its right, rightful place. But the most important thing, I think, though the most dangerous thing I have that happens in colonialism is epistemicide, mm-hmm. because what happens is you take the knowledge base of the indigenous and impose the European knowledge base, so they forget their own history. They forget how to think for themselves as individuals. And once you do that, you're no longer an independent subject. You lose mm. your identity. And I think for Muslims, that is extremely important. And the Palestinian issue, something here, Brother Salman, is the Palestinian issue really sort of encapsulates not only the plight of the Palestinian people geographically and their demography as Palestinians, but how the whole world order mm. is maintained. And it gives us a microcosm example and it is linked to the whole Eurocentric values and white entitlement that is taking place globally. So it's very, very important to see the Palestinian issue not only geographically confined, but how the world order is being dictated. Mm-hmm. And for us, and when I say us, I use as Muslims as well as a wider civil society, the decolonizing community who wish to see a much pluralistic, more inclusive, more equitable society. That is the us I'm talking about here. Mm. That us needs to learn from the Palestinian issue that we need to decolonize, regain our subjectivity, our identity, and have our narrative, the right of our narrative to be competed with the Eurocentric narrative and try and hopefully bring about justice through that. And, and you know, we, when we talk about the Palestinian issue, we're either, we will see most of the narrative starts in 1918, 1917 with Balfour Declaration, mm. or maybe push it a little bit, few more decades to the Zionist movement. Uh, or you have a narrative of the right of the Jews through the Bible. Very rarely within this discourse and this discussion do we ever talk about Muslims. Yeah, I mean, you know, for us, and this is something that we have to understand, that we learn from our Prophet Abu Dhar Ghaffari, who is one of the companions of the Prophet, he asked the Prophet, which was the first house built on earth to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm-hmm. The Prophet replied, Mecca. He asked him a second question, which was a second masjid built. The Prophet replied, Al-Aqsa Masjid in Jerusalem. And the third question is very important and pivotal for us here for decolonial thinking. With Abu Dhar asked Prophet what was the time difference between building the first masjid in Mecca and the second masjid, Al-Aqsa in Jerusalem? The Prophet replied, 40 years. Mm. Now the scholars have deduced that if we believe Adam al-Islam, 
built Masjid al-Haram in Mecca. Then 40 years later, he built Masjid al-Aqsa. Mm. Okay, so we have now a narrative here that we can trace the heritage of Muslims, the heritage and right to worship one God and submit to him 40 years in Jerusalem after the building of Mecca. And it is so central for us that this narrative is never discussed. Mm. And, and when we try to bring this narrative up, it is either undermined to say it's theological, it's Islamic, we don't want to hear about it, yet they want to talk about the Bible, their entitlement or rights of the Bible, but not ours. It's part and of the whole right. Muslim subjectivity, as you mentioned. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It is about Muslim subjectivity and our identity. And this is something we have to, and this is where the decolonialism that we talked mm-hmm. about and epistemic genocide that we talk about, the fact that Muslim knowledge base, it has no respect. And only we can give it respect. And you can see this, how this stems from the Palestinian issue and how it is so central. So we have to start mm-hmm. thinking as critical Muslims, individuals, and we have to try and implement our narrative and challenge be a counter narrative to the discourse of Eurocentricism. And this is also not only about Muslims in the sense that we're just trying to say, all right, this is what Muslims believe in, but what does that lead to? It leads to pluralism, mm. it leads to respect of other people, of other faith and no faith groups, and it talks about inclusiveness. And this is something that, that we have not, we have to go back to our history and learn and how Islamic history, and particularly again through Jerusalem itself, has been so central to show the inclusiveness. Now, if we give you two examples only here, mm. one is the liberation of Jerusalem by Umar bin Khattab in 637. It is amazing that in 637, Jerusalem itself was ruled by the Christians. Uh, Sophronius was the patriarchy of, uh, of Jerusalem, and Heraclius, as the emperor of Roman emperor, was ruling around that region. He had at that time totally barred the Jewish community from entering Jerusalem at the time, or Al-Quds. In fact, there were edicts and laws passed by the Roman Empire. The Jews within their empire could not even look towards Jerusalem. That is how severe it was. They were reduced to below stage of slaveries. You know, it was really horrendous for the Jewish community. When Umar bin Khattab liberated Jerusalem, the first thing he did was to allow Jewish community to return to Jerusalem because he respected their, their centrality, their uh, reverence for the city, and he allowed an inclusive society. And this, you know, is, this goes to the, the very history and our, mm-hmm. our inclusiveness. And the second example, of course, is the great leader, one of the greatest political leader of our time, or in our times, post Sahabas, uh, is Salahuddin Ayyubi. Mm-hmm. When Salahuddin liberated Jerusalem, not only did he allow the Christians, the Crusaders, to remain, if so they wished, but he also allowed the Jewish community, who were again expelled by the Christians, to return back. So we have two incidences here, and bringing, sort of moving fast-forwarding it now. During the Christians' rule, both the Muslims and the Jews suffered. Now, at the hands of the Israeli rules, and I use this word Israeli very specifically, because there's a Zionist element and not all Jews sort of buy into the Israeli narrative here. Mm. It's a very ethno-nationalist project, a colonialist project, and this again ties in with our decolonialist conversation we're having today. They now are oppressing Christians and Muslims. Yeah, and that's something we also mm. shouldn't forget. The Palestinian community comprises of Christians, Muslims, and people of other denominations as and well. Other and other Jews as well. Absolutely. Uh, any Jewish yeah. individual 
who would stand for mm-hmm. uh, justice, for equality, for freedom, uh, will be oppressed by, by the state of Israel and Zionism, mm-hmm. and they'll become a pariah of so-called self-hating Jews. I mean, the, the, that's the, the question that normally comes, you know, pluralism is, is nice and, you know, a good idea, but on when it comes to something, for example, like Al-Quds, Jerusalem, you know, when there's so many competing claims for it, um, it's often that often gets kind of just taken for granted that yeah, it's always going to be you know some people have been criticised now and you know uh, commentators for mentioning this eternal conflict narrative that you know it's always been for thousands of years it's been the seat of you know conflict and conquest and people getting it and and conquering it from from one another uh, and and I think that just kind of pastes over the. Uh, 800 or 1000 years of you know uh yeah. muslim uh kind of uh, rule where you you actually have pluralism you actually have people whose um who are motivated governors rulers who are motivated by a different kind of philosophy of of a man vis-a-vis the planet not of one of domination and control but one of khilafah and stewardship you know of of Ensuring certain, uh, you know, the, the the rights of the creatures, for example, and subhanAllah, I remember, I remember even reading. There's there's a really interesting book called, um, uh, subhanAllah, I forgot the name. Maybe I'll put it up on the screen later if I remember. But it's like a, a very basically ancient examples of non-Muslims talking about Muslims and Islam. Mm-hmm. I think it's. Um, George Hoygen or something like that. I need to check it up. Uh, but like uh, kind of historic figures talking about chronicling, you know, their their, their interaction with Muslims. Uh, and and there was one bishop, Christian bishop in the time of Muawiyah radhiyallahu an, right? So almost like what th- th- fourteen hundred years ago and uh, just under. And he's saying, you know, uh, and he's in like modern day, I think. Um, uh, it just said Mesopotamia. I don't know where exactly. Uh, you know, in, in today. Oh, yeah, it should be in, in Sham. He's like, you know, these these Muslims. They're all right. You pay your taxes. They they leave you alone. They let you get on with your worship. But I have one criticism of them. Um, they don't persecute the Jews. <laughs> you know, that was his criticism of uh, you know the Muslims that they they're letting them worship freely. Um, and I think we need to revive that. Our own, I and mean, this big part of what we try and do here, so I'm trying to see, is we revive our own story and our own narrative, because we're just, you know, everything is imposed on us normally in in, in broader discourse um, from a very distinct Western Christian um, vantage point. Yeah. So even when, uh, even when, for example, uh, a Muslim um, does you know you know talks in a sloppy way about Israel and and he ends up calling them Jews or whatever instead of uh, you know Zionists or Israelis, that will be interpreted with two thousand through the lens of two thousand years of Christian baggage, that this is how fiercely and ferociously Christians hated Jews, so anyone who says anything and uh, against the uh, Jews, that means. They're part of that, you know. We're kind of co-opted into that uh, story and that narrative as well, rather than highlighting the fact that 
the relationship between Muslims and Jews has only, you know, on, a, on even in a stereotypical way, has only soured in the last, you know, 100, 200 years in modernity, right? The Jews of, uh, you know, the world, they wouldn't have that, they wouldn't be scared of Muslims as they would be scared of the Roman Empire, they would be scared of, you know, Christian uh, kings and so forth. Uh, in fact, you know, some of the, the, the great luminaries of, the, of, of Judaism were supported and protected, uh, you know, amongst successive uh, Islamic caliphates, you know. You touch on some very, very important points then. The first is the very aspect of the narrative that, uh, you know, we buy into this idea that uh, what how the Europeans see the world is how the world should be. And this is, of course, this is what we're talking about when we talk about decolonizing, mm. that, you know, we have to get back our narrative uh, and we have to make people understand that the world has never always been how Europe wants it to be and how Europe has made it to be. Mm. There has been different worlds. There has been different narratives around the world and we need to regain that. Also, this idea that the, the Jewish community, when they were persecuted throughout the long years of the diaspora, uh, the place they went for uh, refuge, uh, for in fact to have a decent, just a decent basic livelihood, were Muslim in the Khilafat area. So there, mm. that's why you find Jews right across from Morocco, stretching all the way to Turkey, even Iran and Afghanistan. That's why there's Jews in all these countries because when they were persecuted in Europe, this is the land they went mm. to. But that also touches on another very important aspect of the Jews leaving Europe. Why did they not go into Palestine? And this idea is something very central because the central narrative at the moment that has emerged is that, you know, the Jewish persecution in Europe was only part of the reasons for their return to Palestine. The main reason to return to Palestine is to regain their history and their heritage. It was as if it was destined for them to go there. The real fact is that the, most of the Jews in Europe would not go to Palestine they would not return to Palestine. And the idea of Palestine as a home of return for the Jews is a nationalistic Zionist enterprise. Mm. In fact, when Theodor Herzl tried to propose to the European Jews that let's move to Palestine uh, and create a homeland for ourselves, Rabbi Sonofield, who was the chief rabbi of Europe at the time, who was based in Austria, and I quote him, told Herzl and Zionist movement to come this, from the side of shaitan and pollution. They wouldn't accept it. All the Jewish Board of Deputies up until the middle of 1930s throughout Europe, every country in Europe, went against the Zionist aspiration to return Jews to Palestine. So this idea that Palestine was something, uh, an aspiration for the Jew European Jews to go towards, is really a manufact manufactured by Zionist narrative and Eurocentric colonialism. And of course, this wow. was supported, the Zionist project itself is a colonialist project, it was a project that was supported by the greatest colonialist power of the time, United Kingdom and Britain, and it supported the movement of the Jews from Europe towards Palestine. And that's why at the turn of the 20th century, only 3%, only 3% of the Palestinian population were Jewish, only 3%. 97% was Palestinians, Arabs, Christians, and so forth. So that's very significant. So this change in demography, of the Palestinian population from being 3% to in 1947, uh, 48 being something like 37% is something we need to look at and how that came about. 
And that came about because of the British support for colonialism so that Britain would have an outpost uh, within mm. Muslim frontier land where then they could expand further uh, and use the Jewish people for that expansion. So it was a calculated move. And on the back of that also, if we look at uh, Balfour, Balfour has been declared to be an anti-Semite because while he wanted them to move to Palestine, he didn't want them to be in Britain. Welcome, guys. Sorry to butt in, but how do you like the podcast so far? Interested? Boring? Let us know in the comments below. And click the like button if you like it, and click the dislike button twice if you don't like it. Mm. So they so tried to get rid anti- of them. Exactly. So you have yeah. anti-Semites proposing the movement of the Jews out of Europe, at the same time promoting their own colonialist uh, worldview and, and stance and on the globe. So this is where colonialism comes into, and this is how colonialism helped uh, Zionist mm. movement to shift the European Jews out of Europe. And of course, as the history unfolds, even up until 1930, the population of Palestine does not change much. You know, it's changed, it just barely reaches double figures. European Jews simply would not move. It is only after the coming to power of Hitler And again, here, something very important. It's not that at that time, the Jews all of a sudden changed their aspirations and narratives and their preferences uh, on their right. All of a sudden, they started to believe that, yes, Palestine is a homeland. No, they went there as refugees. Mm. They were fleeing persecution. They were fleeing, fleeing pogroms. And finally, they were fleeing Holocaust. They had no choice but to leave. So they left not because of any political aspiration, they left Europe uh, because they were forced out of Europe. And that is something very, very important. And this narrative has what to if be someone says, What if someone says, well, um, they didn't come to UK, they didn't go to Allied Forces territories? Uh, there's a very, uh, there's a conference called the Avia Conference, E-V-I-A-N, Avia Conference, took place, which is, I think, if I remember right, 1938. Mm. In that, the European powers got together, including United States of America, to solve the Jewish problem. What do we do with the Jews of Europe? Each one of those countries, the Benelux countries said, we have got too many Jews we cannot take anymore, uh, including France, refused to take any more Jews. Mm -hmm. Britain in that conference said, sorry, we we just simply cannot do it. You know, our population, uh, we haven't got the social welfare structure to, to take the Jews in anymore. United States of America accepted to take, I think at the top of my head, something like 10,000. When a ship, Listen to this. When a ship left with women and children from Germany, being persecuted by Hitler, arrived at New York, not a single Jew was allowed to enter America. They, ret- they told the ship to go back. They wouldn't allow them. And these are refugees being persecuted by Hitler. And America wouldn't allow them to enter United States of America. And where did that ship end up? Palestine. So the Palestinians so con- were the only ones, basically, who accepted the refugees, the European powers just wanted to get rid of them. They they accepted in, in, in one context that at that stage, of course, Palestine was being controlled by Britain. Mm. Britain had already occupied it. It was under British mandate. They were colonialist power, so they were the masters. So I think mm. Palestinians really, to be honest, had no saying it. But they would have welcomed them if they had come in as refugees and as equals. And they did that at the initial stages. And the dynamics changed in the middle of 1920s when the Zionist aspiration was not to be to come in as refugees, but to 
create their own enclaves to come as in soon as, as colonizers arrive yeah they, they started mm. to create their own colonies independent of the palestinians trying to expropriate their land at that time under the protection of the british so the british played a pivotal role in empowering the zionist movement colonialist movement and establishing the state of israel so balfour of course allowed to create uh, the whole uh, through his declaration to say that you know they could have a jewish homeland but that homeland to become a state was again the actions of the uh, of the british government's support without mm. that i think the zionist movement would have withered uh, and hopefully we would we would have a different perspective is what that perspective is we could we could it's just conjectures i suppose subhanallah um i didn't know some of that subhanallah i mean in terms of so you're what you're saying is zionism is like a recent invention uh, a bid'a <laughs> you know a heresy of uh, an innovation or within uh, is it was imposed onto Judaism let me help you on this on on, on the front let, let me let me say what what happens then mm. as the palestinians uh, are witnessing the arrival of the uh, jews from europe uh, the zionist that's uh, mm-hmm. at this stage under the protection of the zionist and trying to establish uh, a new political order with the support of the Euro- uh, british power of course the palestinians then reacted against this but britain through several stages tried to promise the palestinians that you know they would have their own state uh, and it would be most probably a united state uh, also they tried to have mm. the arabs around the neighboring countries remember there's no states at this stage especially in the early 20s there's no country called saudi arabia jordan syria iraq all these are created much later on mm. now, all these states and in particularly the creation of saudi arabia is very interesting because there was an individual there called sharif hussein now sharif hussein is instrumental because he is the sheriff of mecca and medina and he's he has a lot of power amongst the arab uh, indigenous people in the region mm. and the british tried to second him to go against the ottoman empire on the grounds that they would have an independent state and an independent palestine and that is very serious. so the british actually offered this through lawrence of arabia however while they were doing that to sheriff hussein they were promising to the uh, zionist in europe that the jews would have a homeland in palestine and amongst themselves uh, meaning the european powers uh, between the french and the british they were saying you know once we occupy mm-hmm. this territory we will carve it up according to this what's known, what was at that time known as the sykes pico agreement so you have a real model here of how the world should be governed and that has been carrying on from really out stretched back to the 16th century uh from the time columbus left and tried to create a european order mm. so this privileging of white uh, knowledge and white perspective is something we need to come to challenge and how it has been imposed upon the palestinians uh, the fact that all the land in 1947-48 something like over 92% or 93% of the land was owned by the palestinians and then at that time they create a quasi united nation uh, in which the they, the united nation proposes to petition palestine and give you know almost 62% or 68% excuse me to this new emerging state uh, of israel and the rest of the palestinians nobody would accept that that mm-hmm. imposition uh, and, and that factor but again here and then this is a, something not new what we have here is we have to see it from the eyes of colonial settlerism 
This is what the white Europeans did when they moved out from Europe and created Australia, mm. New Zealand, Canada, United States of America, Southern American states, how they destroyed the indigenous people and implanted their own base there. And this is what they were trying to do in Palestine as well. And this is their project up until today. And within that project uh, is, of course, how the policies then they implement against, against indigenous. I mean, it can go as bad as Australia, whether the indigenous people have been totally wiped out, or the Americas, Canada, Southern America, and Central America. All that can take place. And that's mm. something we have to be very, very careful of. Or we can think of it of a resistance movement of like South Africa, where the indigenous were never uh, the white who migrated there tried to rule it in a certain way, but they were never successful uh, until the coming of Nelson Mandela, the NC, and the dismantling of the apartheid system. And you have a parallel here, uh, a parallel and also a disconnect. That one, you have the settler colonialism that is taking place, uh, but it is not as extreme as. Canada and America, Australia, but, but neither is it exactly like uh, South Africa because mm. the population demography uh, difference is huge in South Africa. What has happened in Palestine now, we're talking almost 50-50, 50% of Palestinians and 50% of Israeli Jewish mm. uh, nationals. So you have a completely new dynamics. Which direction do we stand in? And this is what I think the world needs to know. Are we going to allow the ethnic cleansing and the genocide of the Palestinian people? Mm -hmm. Are we going to allow a two-state solution and say, you know what, uh, let's forget the Palestinian rights, their history, their heritage, and, and let's be impose mm. a European order on there and we will divide that? Or do we go and say, you know what, we have a history when these people can live together and we have a single person, uh, a single state where everybody lives together equitably. Mm. Uh, and let, let them decide, the people who are living there, how that manifests itself. And we, the international society, and particularly Muslims, as we started about talking about our heritage and subjectivity and identity, have a pivotal role here to play. And not only, first and foremost, of course, for the Palestinians, as we're discussing this issue, but also how our narrative is then introduced in the global order, that, that is Eurocentric. Mm, mm. Otherwise, we will always be secondary, if not tertiary or in totally insignificant, because we will have no say in this. And, and that's why the Palestinian issue is not about simply Palestine. It is about everybody around the globe. Mm. It, sh it should affect us and we should be involved in it and we should have a say uh, towards its liberation. Mm. Um, There's a lot of things flooding in my mind at the moment, you know, just looking at, I've been reading um, uh, statements from even um, civil rights leaders in the USA, you know, and how they they regarded the issue of Palestine in, in a very similar vein, you know, of the question of the global white supremacy and, and uh, you know, calling for so-called third world alliances, you know, to, uh, of, of, of these peoples to kind of rise up and, and challenge that, that uh, Eurocentrism. Um, but, I mean, fast forward now to today, you know, you, we, we've seen the, the recent kind of uh, uh, escalation of, of aggressions uh, against the Palestinians and the replacement... You know of uh, and 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 kind of ethnic cleansing of Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in Jerusalem. What is unique about the 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 kind of broader discourse and media reaction to these events? I mean, many people I've spoken to, and me and ten, me, myself as well. Like, it seems that things are a bit different this time, but I can't remember if maybe that's just 
every time that happens every time something happens people just want to think that it's different this time or is it actually different this time have has the media discourse changed in your opinion has, has the perception of wider society changed let me take uh, take a step back and say you know this what has happened to the palestinian what is happening now is not new mm. it has been happening for the past 73 years since israel was established the establishment of israel itself was on the ethnic cleansing of 531 villages palestinian villages ethnic 75% of palestinian population in 1947 48 were made refugees they are refugees even today mm. so we have seen some horrendous uh, suffering uh, on the on the on the side of the palestinians and israel has been allowed to get away with it and it's been allowed to get away with it because of the support it receives from uh when i say eurocentric power i will expand on that it is not only people of white skin eurocentric order also involves the arab states uh because that is the order they believe in and that's the order they want to live in but we'll touch on that hopefully later on that suffering of the palestinians uh of course has carried on uh, throughout the long years up until 1967 when israel again expanded its territory occupied masjid al-aqsa east jerusalem where masjid al-aqsa is what we now know as west bank and gaza and israel then started at that stage treating the palestinians in different ways uh, as an occupying colonialist power it tried to stabilize and consolidate its position by doing several things one is trying to differentiate the palestinians within the 47 areas and this is very interesting mm-hmm. and language is so important here they were starting being called arabs now if you look at the bbc the whole uh, or politicians will talk about Pal- israeli arabs it never talks about israeli palestinians so it has already changed their identity it has taken away from who they are right so that's the first mm-hmm. thing and that that is this is epistemicide this is mm-hmm. this is the knowledge base that is being destroyed it, it how we treated them was second class citizen within israel the palestinians but the palestinians in the area that was occupied in 67 uh, the west bank east jerusalem was also differentiated in three different zones people in gaza that start from gaza they were put under siege which has been under siege for something like 13 years now uh and their total blockade is an open prison where everything that enters or leaves gaza is controlled by israelis by land sea air whatever they have absolutely no control it's a prison on west bank Uh, which is cities like Janine, uh, Khalil, um, Kalkilia, all these cities are again controlled by Israel, but they have a little bit more relaxation in the sense they have a right of movement with something like 635 checkpoints which they have to go through uh, to be able to go from one place to another. They are controlled in a different way. And then we have Palestinians living around Masjid al-Aqsa who have to carry different id cards their number plates uh, on their cars are different uh, they're totally uh, living under the apartheid what we would call an apartheid system or we would recognize as an apartheid system so here's israel crying out all this persecution uh, and impositions of great hardship on the palestinian people and within that period we've had many uh, episodes uh, in which israel arbitrarily kills maims and dehumanizes the palestinians in overall context that we have uh, operation mm. cast lead and and we have many other attacks on gaza so this is very similar to what has happened in the past 
so this ongoing crisis, uh, the Nakba of the Palestinian people, the catastrophe, is 73 years old. That is, I think, something that is very important mm. for us to learn. Now, to go back to your question, has the reaction been different? I feel this, there, is, there is an element of change. Uh, there's an element of change from several factors. The civil society, I believe, has always been pro-Palestinians. Once they started to learn more about what was happening to them, they can relate the ordinary people mm. on the streets of Britain, and I specifically focus on Britain here, has always been on the side of the oppressed and has always been on the side that, whose rights have been appropriated. And here they, they relate with the Palestinians because they want to have a just world. However, the elites, and when they say elites, uh, not I include politicians, but the media, uh, the talking heads, the institutions in Britain, has always been very, very pro-Israeli and mm. pro-Zionist. That dynamic is now, I think, challenged. I would use the word challenge again very, very specifically and um, with great caution, that it is being challenged more than ever before. So you have, for example, when this attack took place, when we started a campaign to write to the British uh, parliamentarians mm. uh, to condemn uh, the evictions, the forceful expulsions of people from Sheikh Jarrah, we had 120,000 letters go out to the MPs. There is not a single MP, to my estimation, in British Parliament today who hasn't received over 1,000 letters, over 1,000 wow. letters, each one of them. Now, that's a sea change. Uh, we have what never kind been of numbers did do... you see before? Talking about a uh, couple of thousand mm. yeah, in total. Now we're talking about each MP receiving a thousand. Wow. So there's a sea change. And that is taking place because, and that is forcing. And what has that, what resulted that is MPs are now having to come out and declare their positions. And this is important. Mm. We, are, we I, I would like to emphasize something very important when you campaign. We are not going with a begging bowl or stretching out our hands to the British parliamentarians asking for their mercy. No. What we are doing by doing these campaigns is asking them to stand up for the very principles they're preaching us. Mm. They talk about justice, international law, human rights. Stand up for them. That's what we're saying. Otherwise, tell us that you do not believe in this and stop preaching us all these ideas. This is exposing Eurocentricism, mm. white privilege. And this is where decolonial acts should enter. And we should then, and this I slightly differ with my other colleagues who talk about decolonialism, where they shouldn't engage anything with Eurocentric powers. I believe in slightly different approach that we expose mm. their hypocrisy, we expose their duplicity, and we tell them that you want the world to be ruled against these principles, then apply them. And this is a very similar principle that we have used, asking the British government to stop selling arms to Israel. Mm. Because if you look at the British government's own principles, uh, they state they, they have about five or six principles, but three of them are very important for us. They quote, and this is the British government's own principle, that they will never sell arms to any country that violates international law. <laughs> They state that they will never sell arms to any country that represses in the, uh, uh, internal people, internal mm. population. And thirdly, they will never sell arms to any country they will tr that will try and gain land through use of force. Israel does all these three. So why is the British government violating its own principles, teaching, telling us that they're ethical when they're not? And it is our Maybe job. Maybe it's because they're doing all three and not just one of them. <laughs> 
Sunnah maybe. Yeah. So, but this is our our job to expose them mm. and call them out for what they are. And for us to do that is the decolonial move because we're moving towards a just society. Let's treat yeah. everybody equally. Everybody is human being and everybody is valuable. But this then goes back to the whole order of this uh, central Eurocentric global apparatus and, and order how they want to. And that's why we have also the Arab leaders, the UAE, mm-hmm. to a certain extent, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Sudan now, Egypt, all trying, they, they basically align themselves with the Eurocentric global order. And they're also part and parcel of the problem rather than the solution mm-hmm. towards creating not only freedom and justice for Palestinians, but for a just world. Yeah. Remember, this, these nations also repress their own people more than anybody else. Uh, and, and that is something very important for us to do. Do you think that the, the non-Muslims' perception in the UK, even to armed resistance, has changed um, when it comes to the, the Palestinian question? Because I mean, I mean, I'm not exposed to every non-Muslim, obviously, or even every Muslim. Sure. But just from like comments I see under, you know, now when when the, the the mainstream media posts something, I see even like lots of non-Muslim names saying. You know, well, they have the right to defend themselves. What uh, uh, the Palestinians now have the right to defend themselves? You know, um, what Israel is doing is wrong, and it seems like you know the um, the average person again. It could be just echo chamber algorithms and all that. But do you think that the, the mood and the perception is changing? I think what the mood is changing in is that Israel cannot sell its mm. own narrative of the right to defend. What is happening is people now are aware that Israel is not defending itself, but Israel is trying to capitulate the Palestinians into surrendering and exterminating them. Mm. And that narrative, I think, is very important. That when Israel says that they have a right to defend, what it really means is that it has a right to continue with its colonization. Uh, That narrative, I think, is, is much stronger, and it's something we need to build on and expose. Because what Israel is doing by, by saying that we have a right to defend ourselves is saying that nobody else has a right to do anything and we can do anything we like to the oppressor and the occupied. History tells us otherwise, that the, the right of the occupied and the colonized, ha- they have a right to resist. Mm. And it is the colonizer that is the guilty party here. And they cannot use uh, the idea of defense when they are the colonizing power. So when we look at the Israeli-Palestinian perspective, uh, sort of issue from the colonization lens, we see very clearly then that what we have here is the entitlement that the British had when they went to India, uh, or when the French and the Spanish went to the Southern mm. Americas, that, that we have the right to kill these people because, which are, we, because we are much more civilized than they are, and we have to raise everybody else, and whoever doesn't become like us or resist us is worth exterminating. And this is the narrative of the Israelis that is being exposed. That there's a colonizing force, this entitlement that they gave themselves through the gun and the bullet and the assistance of European powers, in particular Britain and now America, is no longer being is washed by the people. Mm. Uh, we talked about Europe being absorbed in the Eurocentric knowledge. It's no longer being accepted by the people, majority of the people. And this is what you're seeing, and that is, of course, being expressed by the, the Palestinians of having a right to resist. Mm. But I think we have to look at it from the counter-narrative perspective that what really is happening, that a colonizing power has no privilege, has no entitlement to go and kill the colonized and the oppressed people. Yeah. 
Assalamualaikum guys, me again. Just a reminder, if you want to support the Islam Trinity Unscripted Podcast, click the link below and head over to islamtrinity.com forward slash donate. Well, I mean, I want, I want to get your views as well on, specifically for us here, British Muslims, European Muslims, American Muslims, you know, how do you feel when you hear brothers, young brothers and sisters saying, you know, don't focus on politics in the Western world, you know, focus on Tawheed or Khilafah or spirituality, you know, depending on the kind of their background and stuff. You know, they'll, they'll, some will say, you know, look, you've been doing this for 20 years, 30 years. What, what have we achieved? Very, very good question and very important question. I think. Thanks for asking me that. The first thing to understand that Islam is political. Once you believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, there could be much, no greater political statement than that because you're going counter to everything. Political is to be able to have your own viewpoint, which then you can defend and it also becomes challenged by others. That is political. So once you say you believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you're political. So let's look at what politics means. Mm. And once you're political, you have your identity because you're saying you're a Muslim, you believe in certain things, and that belief, and to defend that belief, means you have to defend whatever is right and whatever is just, as we are taught in the Quran. We have to defend what is just. It is our, we, can, we have to defend justice, even if it's against our own mm. blood, kith and kin. That, so that is political. And therefore, we cannot say Islam is not political. Islam is political. And I think those who say that, uh, not all of them, but I think they are unconsciously, I'll be very, very polite, unconsciously influenced by Eurocentric narrative because they don't want Muslims to be political. They want them to think that Islam is something that is a private affair that should be practiced within the four walls of their homes and nothing outside that. Mm -hmm. And if you want to do that, you know, you're free to do that. But for me, I do not accept that. I believe Islam has a not only a belief system for an individual, but a system and a structure of how humanity should conduct itself. And that's why it's political. Yeah. And therefore it cannot be apolitical. Uh, that, that means that Muslims have to engage themselves in every things that affects human beings, wherever it is, whether it's wars in Palestine and Israel, as we're seeing at the moment, or colonialism, environment, animal welfare, all these factors affects us. And therefore we have to be involved in each and every one of those us strands or even more than what I've mentioned, because that is our responsibility and duty to make the world a better place for humanity. Mm. Uh, so we have to carry on, on with that. And it is therefore something we should, we should be involved in. But this also brings us back from where we started. The, the Palestinian issue is not just geographically confined. For a Muslim and also greater wider civil society, as I used the word us at that stage, is to bring about justice. And therefore, it involves us not only to bring justice for them, but to have our rights of what we believe in to be respected and to be debated and discussed. Otherwise, you might as well surrender yourself and say, you know what, we will uh, abide by everything you tell us, keep quiet, and just care about our animal welfare instinct as a, uh, and remove all the human nature within us. That is what you're reducing yourself to. And we cannot afford to reduce ourselves to just animal beings. We are not just in need of 
a roof and a food and, and a holiday every two weeks in a year and be happy with that. No, we, we are human beings and we have a responsibility and we are Muslims and we have a responsibility to humanity on both from, from both those angles. And Islam and Muslim, is, uh, the teachings makes us better human beings. Mm. And that, that elevation of our status means that we have then a responsibility how we spread that and how we bring about love and bondship within human nature. And wherever things are wrong, we are not scared to point that out and stand out, stand for the oppressed and the, against the oppressor. So imagine if someone says, okay, I believe with everything you just said. However, the way I want to exercise that, you know, Islam manifesting itself in the public domain, etc., etc., is not by entering Western politics or Western, you know, lobbying Western MPs because kuffar or whatever, yeah, sure. um, part of the problem, not part of the solution. Um, I want to, you know, strengthen the Muslim world. I want to uh, establish khilafah or, um, you know, some kind of Islamic uh, nation-state system, and then they'll go and attack Israel or they'll, you know, they'll sort out the problem. Um, what if someone says, you know, you, you know, people have been marching and writing letters to MP for decades, nothing's happened. Palestine is, hasn't look, been liberated. Sure, sure. Let's look. Uh, let's look at something we sometimes preach, but we forget ourselves uh, when we're talking about trying to create a state that will then bring about conflict, and only through war will be able to solve a solution. And I've had mm-hmm. these questions uh, in different formats. Uh, on a lot of platforms in the last mm-hmm. 10 days I've been, I've been conducting. I don't believe in them, by the way. I'm just trying <laughs> oh, to. Yeah, no, I, I know you're asking me because I know because that's why I'm yeah. saying that's why I'm saying that I've, uh, many questions mm-hmm. have been raised where young people in particular say we need a Muslim army. Yeah. Right. But these are the same people when you calm them down and ask them, how was Islam spread? They will say, oh, not by the sword. <laughs> right. If Islam was not spread by the sword, uh, and we believe that, and we can argue throughout the Al-Sham liberation, if you look in China, the Far East, uh, Asia, how Islam went is through traders, through commerce, uh, through interaction of mixed marriages, all these kind of uh, social welfare beings. Then how all of a sudden we want military might and violence to be the solution. We have to be at the same time very, very firm. What we believe is in right, and stand up for right for whatever cost that might be required and use all the instruments possible to bring about a change, not only in winning the battle or winning the war. And I want to differentiate something here between battle and war. You might think that to give Palestinian victory is to have a military defeat of the Israelis uh, and all of a sudden we create a state of uh, Palestine. That would not be, we would win the battle but that would not be winning the war because that would reduce us back to being what the Zionists are today. We'd be oppressing the the Israeli Jews. Really, that's not a victory. A victory is when you go into a territory, you win over the battle, but you also win over the hearts and the minds of the people. And they come to respect you. How our Sahabas did in Balberg, in Ajnadain, in Fihal, in Damascus, Mm -hmm that when they occupied, when, excuse me, when they liberated these lands, and when they had to leave them, uh, if you remember our history, to confront Heraclius at Yarmouk, people in Damascus were saying, don't leave, don't go, please. We, need, we love you more than the Romans. 
Mm. Right? This is what we have to do. But what we forget is we, we are very black and white. We think we can only use uh, military might, how the Europeans have used it. Remember, this is, again, very European way yeah, of centrism, yeah. That, yeah. That I always think, you know, when the, the hadith, uh, you know, when, when some of the new convert Sahaba they said, make for us this kind of tree that they hang, they, the Mushrikeen used to hang their weapons on, make for us something like they have, <laughs> you know. Uh, and the Prophet became very angry, you know, that you're using this, you want, you, you, you know, the. Kind of a, a type of shirk, basically, yes. right? To, to seek right. blessings from that. Uh, it's like we want we want a state like the modern state with all the trappings as well. You know, this kind of mono legal system, um, legal monism. This this uh, all kind of uh, uh, overarching, kind of all pervasive, um, kind of a, a dom- all dominating system. A pure Western Eurocentric kind of. You know, um, modernist uh, construction, and we just put an Islamic label on it, rather than doing the hard work of unraveling and 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 opening up the shackles that modernity has put on our, our politics and how we kind of organize society and stuff. And I think that's it's not just young people. I even I have that urge. You know that uh, I think as a society we're moving away from the slow, difficult, hard work. For a, an, a, 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 for a, for a, a kind of victory beyond the horizon, we're moving away from that to more. I'm hungry. I'm going to order Uber Eats. I want something quickly. I want to order something from Amazon Prime. Come quickly! You know, I want to download this program, watch it immediately. We're we're kind of moving away from that hard work for a long delayed kind of um, gratification to a, an instant. We want quick results. You know. Look, they dropped a bomb. Okay, let's let's find a bomb as well, right? To drop on them, or um, they've got a state. Let's make our state, or you know that. Do you get what I mean? I mean, it's it's the stuff that you've been working on. You're showing like a slow but actual positive trajectory, and that that plea of which is which is motivated by a genuine concern. Inshallah, sincere people are saying, you know, they want they want something to be fixed. But they 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 don't want to put in the hard work of sowing the seeds. They're saying, okay, where's our Salahuddin? Not knowing that Salahuddin was like the the end result of hundred years or a hundred years of you know sowing the seeds and and planting. People who did work, hard work passed away. People who replaced them, you know, carried the baton from when they when you know when they left off. And eventually, it culminated in some kind of, you know, just the bit that goes in the, in, in the in the summary history books, you know, that the highlights reel, and we yeah maybe that's that's how, how we explain it. The highlights reel. We want the highlights reel, but we don't want the the whole kind of uh, boring one day test match that, <laughs> that that produces it. So sure, I mean, you, t- you touched on some very important points there. The first thing is, of course, I think what also happens is that people are. Uh, frustrated to a point of desperation and in their desperation they 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 they're so concerned that they don't know anything better they feel you know we can't see this i mean i have met a lot of people who've switched off all sorts of media they will not look at the news because they're genuinely uh, perturbed and it disturbs them mm-hmm. and, and it's rightly so i mean how can you see what's happening there and you want solutions and you know i have sympathy with them 
But we have to always remember that, you know, we have to work hard. Uh, we have to carry on and win, uh, try and defend what is happening now, uh, try and defend our people who are being oppressed now uh, and make sure that they're protected and they do not lose any more lives, mm -hmm. but also try and bring about a victory that has a meaning. Otherwise, you know, you have a French revolution where you have a revolution uh, and post the revolution, more people are killed than before because the revolutionaries themselves becomes the dictators. Yeah. You know, we have to bring mm -hmm. that change about and that is not taking place. And that touches, you know, very, very well with what you mentioned about Salahuddin Ayubi Rahmatullahi. If you think about Salahuddin, he, throughout his life, I mean, he learned everything Nuruddin, uh, Zengi. And then Salahuddin himself, how many battles, ask yourselves, how many battles did he have against the Crusaders? One, he had the Battle of Hittim and then the Siege of Jerusalem. So all his life, what he did was he rebuilt the Ummah. He brought mm -hmm. about unity. He brought about the teachings of Islam for the Al-Quds, for the Al-Jihad. And then towards the very end of his life, he then confronts the Crusaders, a hit team, and then the siege of Jerusalem and liberates Jerusalem. So there's no war throughout his life that every, excuse me, every mm -hmm. month or every year he was in battle with the Crusaders. No, it's completely the reverse. So as you say, we want the highlight, but we forget the hard work of the lifetime struggle that Salahuddin had against the Muslim or with the Muslims mm. themselves to make them better, to, to bring them forward. And therefore, when he liberated it, it became a beacon for us even today. Yeah? Yeah. We can still talk about that, that this is how it should be done. So let's learn the, those history and let's see how we can use that and learn lessons from that and how we can put them yeah. into context into our time. So, and that brings me to something very important about the Palestinian issue. We also started talking about the Palestinian issue. It's not geographically confined. Those who work on the Palestinian issue, those who talk about Muslims and Islam and living in the West in particular, you know, it gives us a great opportunity to work with uh, our neighbors who are not Muslims. You know, as, as we accept and all the mm -hmm. census, I, I, I guarantee with a hand on my heart that if there was a poll taken out today uh, the, of the British public, who they sympathize more with, it would be the Palestinians. There's no doubt about that. So, and just look at the demonstration we had last week. We had 150,000 people, an estimated number. Yeah. Half of them were non-Muslims. So this is an opportunity for you as a British Muslim living in this country to be able to give dawah mm. of the wider dawah of what you represent, what you stand for, how you present yourselves. And this is something very important that the right extremist nationalists really hate. And they, therefore they use every single example, one misdemeanor by a Muslim is exaggerated, uh, it, it's you know thrown out of context. While, of course, that could be a wrong misdemeanor, but it is never put into perspective. Yeah? Mm. And therefore, it is very important for us to have a face-to-face -face relationship with the people we live in this country. And Palestine provides us with that. Uh, I'll just give you an example that happened this weekend. A horrendous uh, group of maybe six or eight cars uh, went through London shouting anti-Semitic slogans. We mm. condemn that, right? It, the prime minister within a minute condemned it. The opposition leader within a minute condemned it. But on the same day, when Palestinians were protesting on the same day, right? When Palestinians were protesting in Nottingham, an individual drove deliberately into the protesters and injured one individual. Has that yeah. been highlighted? Has that been highlighted? You would have to go to the local Nottingham newspaper to find that out. So you can see what's happening, right? One side which is wrong, is condemned, it should be condemned. We're not saying don't condemn it, condemn it. But let's bring the other side up. And this is our, our responsibility. 
And this is how, as this is what it means, even being a British Muslims, if we remain quiet, we'll become second and third class citizens because what happens to us, what hurts us, the violations against us will not be taken care of. And this is represented in our concerns for justice for the Palestinian people. Yeah, subhanAllah. I mean, and that parity, it won't come by us just saying, oh, look how unfair the media is. <laughs> we have to actually challenge them and, and um, get involved in the hard work of not only just building our own institutions and, and, and power, but also challenging and, and entering the domains of media, politics, law, you know, fi- economics even, to represent, to be in those, to, to represent not just brown bodies and faces, but actual values and, and principles wherever decisions are being made, you know. And I think that has that is part of the, the, the reason behind the, the, the maybe the, the, the tide change as well. You know, with, you know, newsrooms and, um, you know, uh, broadcasting kind of um, decisions, uh, uh, meetings where that's happening, there are going to be more and more Muslims eventually. um, And hopefully there won't just be kind of the kind of Muslims that have that feel that they have to shed their their Muslimness in order to succeed. But bring some of their principles with them into those domains of life you know um i suppose i i i also wanted to touch on what else okay so you've mentioned just um what else can can european muslims do right to do our part so you mentioned um use this cause as a, a re, for, as a reason to reach out to your non-muslim friends neighbors colleagues to build, you know, that grassroots alliance um, and movement, um, hold MPs to account, you know, lobby them, um, dem- make demands to them, if they, you know, to, to 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 act according to their own principles that they claim to hold, or publicly say, look, we don't believe in these uh, principles anymore. Um, obviously, there's kind of demonstrations and so forth that are happening. I think on a weekly basis now, even in local towns and cities across the UK. Um, what else can we do? I mean, I've, I've seen you talk about, uh, for example, boycotts. And boycotts are always a type, type of thing that it's hard for the average Muslim to know, is this a genuine kind of BDS or boycott um, target? Or is it kind of like Ribena has alcohol in it? Or Walker's Crisp has some weird E number in it because we love to spread that kind of stuff as well, you know. Um, what 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 do you suggest in terms of boycott yeah, for 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 the average Muslim? Because our numbers are increasing, our purchasing power is increasing, our influence to our friends and families and colleagues is increasing. What can, what kind of economic hit can we make, or does it even make a difference? Welcome, guys. What do you think so far? Do we disagree? Let us know in the comments below. Uh, let me take the last question first. Does it make yeah. a difference? Uh, according to Netanyahu himself, uh, he quoted, I think, last year or the year before, that the greatest danger Israel uh, faces is the BDS movement. Wow. This is Netanyahu. So the greatest danger Israel faces is the BDS movement. And this is very important. The 
because if you think about apartheid South Africa, how it came down, it was because of economic sanctions mm. uh, and boycott. No more than sanctions, it was a boycott by civil society in Europe. So this is central to us. And you might think as an individual that, uh, you know, you're 10 pounds, 20 pounds, what can you do if you even in a year spend that much? But think about 3 million Muslims times it by 10. We talk all of a sudden, you're talking million. about 30 million. All, all of a sudden, Quick math. right? Uh, so, so it is huge. And as you say, some of it is good habits when we go shopping, you know, we look at our label, whether it's halal or haram. Let's extend on that. Look where it's produced. Mm. Yeah, If it's produced in Israel, under the tag is West Bank or Jordan Valley, the other three tags they go under, don't buy it. They're all Israeli products. Don't buy that product. And it, I think that is so important because it makes you an ethical consumer. Because all of a sudden your child... Your husband, mm. your wife, your daughter, your sister will see that you will not buy certain products and you're bound to have a conversation about that. It will make you an ethical and you can expand on that. That makes you a better human being. You feel good about it. Yeah. So forget helping the Palestinians at the moment. <laughs> Think about yourself. You feel good about mm. it. Yeah. And if the and ethics is isn't very- enough, then uh, yeah. we've got the stick as well. The carrot isn't <laughs> enough. We've got the stick as well. We had a fatwa yes. a few years ago published about Israeli dates, for example, being haram to That's buy and right. sell. That's um, right. So, 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 so that is very central. Uh, of course, then that that has the impact uh, that you are now saving yourself from assisting and aiding a colonialist power that is using uh, its authority and its military might to kill Palestinians. And think how much a, a rubber bullet uh, cost. It cost ten pounds. Uh, Allah for protect all of us. But imagine if it is your ten pounds. Mm. That's used for that. Yeah. So think of it that rubber way. Rubber bullet cost so, ten pounds. Yeah, I don't think it costs wow. too much. Yeah, so 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 we have to think think of it that way. Yeah, mm. uh, we have to think of it in a way that how it's helping us to make us better human beings. But of course, that also makes Israel a pariah state because if you then take one step forward from there, that the shop you're going to has mm. many Israeli products, you can complain to the manager. You can tell your community, you know, this shop has got excessive amount of Israeli products. Don't buy those products, and. It's economics and it's business and it's capitalism. If more people don't buy those products, that company will not sell those products. Mm. It's simple. It just makes sense. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So this is how this is why Netanyahu thinks it's a danger to Israel. So it is very very important. And what we say uh, as friends of Alexa is check the label is our first line of a BDS movement as individuals for civil society. There's all sorts of other stuff, but for civil societies, check the label. Whenever you go shopping, check the label. If it's as I mentioned, is from Israel, West Bank, or Jordan Valley, don't mm. buy it. As product-wise, there's, we only boycott two other products. Uh, one is Coca-Cola. We focus only on one product at a time because only after we get a victory from one product, we move on to other product. Coca-Cola is one of those companies that has a plant in, Palestine, in West Bank. Uh, it uh, extracts Palestinian water when Palestinians are not allowed to have that water. Uh, and of course, that plant is owned by an Israeli. So it is actually supporting occupation mm. and expanding occupation. Now, when we started this campaign a few years ago, we got a letter from the CEO of Coca-Cola to say that, look, yeah, you, you, it's all very nice and good that you started this campaign, but uh, we employ Palestinians. <laughs> so you're hurting the Palestinians. Now, our answer to him is very similar to the ANC's answer uh, when the whites, South African, used to say that if you boycott Israel, uh, South African fruit and vegetable, 
uh, the Africans will become unemployed from our farms. But as the Palestinians, what would they prefer, a weekly wage or freedom? Mm. Freedom and independence, that's what they want. And for us, we have to support that independence. We we cannot allow uh, an occupying power to subjugate the people and give them tuppence uh, on their own land from the stolen land, their stolen resources, uh, and then use that as an excuse to continue with their, their, their mm. colonization. So it's very, very important. So hopefully I put both sides of the argument, check the label, and we can make a big difference. And of course, from there, we can expand and use at international level, national level. There's many other projects that we carry on. But I think as, as Muslims, as individuals who are listening to this, I think check the label and boycott Israel. I think it's extremely important. The other things that we can do... So in terms of the boycott... So you're saying Coca-Cola, what was the second one? You said two products. Sorry, Hewlett-Packard. Hewlett-Packard. Uh, sorry, P- Puma and Puma. We've got Puma. three. Puma okay. is, uh, we wear t-shirts. I was, uh, uh, I was worried you were going to say Pepsi there. <laughs> <laughs> no. We have to give an alternative. Uh, so Puma so uh, these basic uh, staple Israeli, uh, foods. <laughs> yeah. Israeli national football team. Uh, again, mm. we it's a big campaign. And we have just seen footballers for the first time. You know, we're talking about change and yeah, yeah, uh, situation. Sure. This is the first time we have seen what I would call high-caliber influential individuals, social-caliber uh, influencers. Mm. Well, now we had Pogba yesterday from Manchester United. Uh, we had Chowdhury from Leicester City when they were in the FA Cup, flying the, FA Cup, uh, flying the Palestinian mm. flag. We have many football, footballers <coughs> around the world who are doing something similar. So we have to, we have to encourage these people, yeah? and we have to move and change those dynamics. So, so this is the sort of boycott uh, aspect uh, to, to move beyond that for us in this point of very a crisis for the Palestinians. I think we need to do several things. One is I would recommend that you get in touch with your local masajid and your imams and tell them to read one hadith uh, on Fadaila al-Quds. We have got that on our website. You can download it a day uh, aloud to the congregation so people get to know how important it is for us. And we, again, regain our identity, our history, Mm. our heritage. It's extremely important. Second is if you can read Kunut Nazila uh, in one of the Farai Salah. And finally, on Friday Qutbah, the second portion, to remember Masjid Al-Aqsa and the Palestinian people. And this should be an ongoing process. Uh, as individuals as well, we need mm. to be better educated about the issue. Uh, read individuals who, have, who understand and who have a holistic approach to this. Don't accept everything that is in the media. Uh, especially that the narrative mm. that has been forced in, and that I personally was indoctrinated in <laughs> 90, early 1990s, and that could have led me astray. And I am, that's one of the greatest favors Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has done to me, that He made yeah. me see. Uh, and yeah. we need to become much more uh, independent uh, mentally, uh, as you say, the epistemic genocide that has taken place to regain mm. our knowledge base and our knowledge sources. Of course, what I would also recommend is when the um, coronavirus pandemic rulings uh, are lifted is to visit Masjid visit Al-Aqsa. Al-Aqsa, yeah. Go there, see it for yourself, become an eyewitness. Allah, we've been sending people for the past 20 years. I have not found a single individual, not a single individual who has gone there and not become more pro-Palestinian. Because once you go there and see it for yourself, you will understand. You, nobody will need you to tell you a story. <clears throat> Mm. We'll understand exactly what is happening to the Palestinians. And this is either you're a Muslim or a non-Muslim. Visit mm. it for yourself. Go to the refugee camps. Go to the West Bank. Go through the checkpoints with the Palestinians. 
go to Gaza if you are allowed to and see what life is about and ask yourself, is this humanity? Should this be allowed in our lifetime? We talk about never again. It is happening in front of our eyes. Mm. Let's stop it. I'm conscious of time. I don't want to take so much of your time. You've been very generous with your time. We spoke about the, the history, the now, the, the slow but steady trajectory of you know hard uh, work. Not, not just the highlights, but the actual hard work behind the scenes. I just wanted to quickly ask, um, it's very short from my end, but the answer might not be that short. But what is your future vision now for the Palestinian issue? future depends on us more than the, the Palestinians have shown themselves that they have shown to the world that they're willing to resist the occupation. They're willing to stand their ground. Uh, they're willing to sacrifice all these lives that they've lost, uh, all the persecutions, the right of movement, freedom to live, the freedom to pray in their masjid. They've done all that for us. They have done as much as any human community or family can do. I mean, just think of what is happening now in Gaza but you never hear them saying, we're going to run away now. Mm. They, they're refusing to move. They'll be killed, but they're refusing to move. So they're doing as much as they can. So it depends on us. How much are we willing to sacrifice and stand up for what is justice, what is right, first and foremost, for human beings, and to be able to live as human beings? And we have to use all avenues. I'm sure people who are listening to us today will have much better ideas than we have. Sometimes they have much more novel ideas. So let's use all the instruments that we have at our disposal and try and bring about a change, mm -hmm. uh, see change of idea, uh, and put pressures on those who are supporting the state of Israel to stop doing that and bring about some sort of reprieve and relief for the Palestinians. And we have an added responsibility as Muslims because unlike other issues around the world where people are persecuted, for us, there's the dynamics of Masjid Al-Aqsa. Remember, Al-Aqsa Masjid is mm. the first Qibla, the site of Al-Isra Al-Mihraj, only place on the planet Earth where all the Prophet prayed at any one given time together, led by the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It is a site, site where many Prophets, that almost every Prophet that is mentioned in the Holy Quran resided or had contact with. So from start from Adam Al-Islam, Musa al-Islam, Yaqub al-Islam, Ibrahim al-Islam, Yunus al-Islam, uh, Yusuf al-Islam, all the prophets, Isa al-Islam, Maryam, Yahya, Zakaria, all of them, one way or another, are connected. So when we talk about the love of the prophets, our love shouldn't be second. Mm. And finally, it is, it's a verse of the Holy Quran. Yeah, it is mentioned in the Quran, makes us, the, the obligation upon us is so high that some people, some scholars have said it's Fazer Kifaya within every community. So within every community, somebody should rise up and be able to talk about and defend the right of the Palestinians and try and end their occupation. And we, we are, as a civil society, in a position to change the dynamics. Remember, most colonialist powers were not defeated because of the colonialists and their allies all of a sudden waking up one morning and thinking, you know what, what we're doing is wrong, let's give up. No, it happened because of the pressure mm. of several types of pressure. One is the resistance from th those who are there on the ground that is being provided by the Palestinians. Second, because it, for the colonizers and their supporters, it became unbearably difficult to justify their position. Mm. Third, economically, it became very difficult. Fourth, the force was so great for change from the civil society, but 
but they had no option. And that is where we come in. Mm. We have to change the dynamics and that forces. And that is the only way we can change the mindset of the colonialist Zionist state. We will not be able to convince them by sitting them around the table and being good to them and thinking that some rationale will enter their head and they'll give up the occupation. It's not going to take place. That is why we have to do whatever we have to do and whatever capacity we have within our means. Baraklafik, Sheikh. Um, I could talk all day with you, mashallah, but maybe we can uh, schedule an, another call in the future sometime, inshallah. Jazakumullah uh, khairan for joining us. And Jazakumullah khairan for you for joining at home. There you have it, uh, brothers and sisters. We have um, some practical steps, what we can do, you know, um, put contact your local MP, for example, put their feet to the fire, um, make your demands to them, um, get in touch with local masajid for... Tell them to this hadith, read a hadith a day on the, the virtues of uh, Al-Quds, of Jerusalem. Qanut uh, al-Nazila in the prayers. Friday khutbah, for example. We have lots of um, uh, templates on islamtrinacy.com. Uh, and also, don't forget to uh, follow uh, Sheikh Ismail Patel and the, the great work Friends of Al-Aqsa are doing. Um, yeah, that's it from me. I'll speak to you soon, inshallah. Uh, if you like this podcast, remember, do give a like and a share. And, um, subscribe and hit that bell notification to be notified of similar podcasts in the future. Uh, until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.